I like Death by DVD. It's a statement. You are listening to Death by DVD. Welcome to the amusement park. I'm Hank the World's Greatest, and here is I, Alexander Nash, who will be taking your tickets for another wild Ramiro ride. I'd say a personal favorite subject of ours, wouldn't you? I'm very surprised you didn't turn me into the old man from the amusement park. I've been trying all day to come up with some sort of cruel, unabashed <laughs> intro to just call you an old fuck, and I just, I couldn't. I did, nothing was really funny to me. It just seemed abusive, and I didn't want to start a show about elderly abuse with me abusing <laughs> you. Thank you for calling me elderly. Well, not quite. I mean, you're near that midlife crisis. You know, you've got a whole Faith No More song to enjoy at the age you're going on in life. So, I mean, that's something, right? Just just the one Faith No More song? Well, only one is specifically about having a midlife crisis. Yeah, just just that one. Where do we go from here? We are going to talk about the incredibly lauded Shudder premiere of the quote-unquote lost George Romero film, The Amusement Park. Now, people need to do the research, first of all. I, I understand advertising. I understand how advertising works. But at the same time, I think that they needed to be a little bit more up front, and I want to say they, I mean mostly the horror journalists who are saying the lost George Romero film because it's not a film per se. It's a PSA. It's a uh, it's an industrial film. Yeah, it's it's one hundred percent a commercial film. And just for our audience members that don't exactly know what that is, I have a definition provided by Wikipedia. An industrial commercial or industrial film are videos that targets an industry or business audience. More specifically, industrial films are for non-broadcast use only. Human resources, training films, army and military films, manufacturing films, educational films, and so forth. So this was literally. Something, and if you grew up in a time period where I did, where they'd bring the projector into the classroom yep. and they would run something about boat safety or drinking and driving on the projector, you know, it's a PSA. It's an hour long PSA that George Romero happened to direct in between doing, um, I believe, uh, There's Always Vanilla and Season of the Witch. It was 1973. Yeah, it was. It wasn't long after um, There's Always Vanilla when he made this film. So it was it was a work for hire. Joint. Oh, well, you're leaving out also the juices loose. He was working on that at that time period. That's what 1974 and the crazy. So you've got Night of the Living Dead. That's 68. There's always Vanilla 71. Season of the Witch 72. Crazy 73. Then the juices loose. Okay, so it was in between. Yeah. Season of the Witch and the Crazies. Yeah, so he'd done some really significant stuff. I feel at at this point when he came into this, and it's. Well, we'll get there later. I'm, I'm about to start unraveling before I need to. The film itself is, it's not a narrative piece of filmmaking. It was a work for hire 
job that George took. Now, that doesn't mean that George didn't put a little of himself in this film. He very much did, and we'll be discussing that later, but I just think we need to they needed to temper people's expectations a little bit more about what it was. Uh, because if you read through a lot of the articles that were posted on a lot of the major horror websites, Lost George Romero film may be his most haunting and dark of them all. The scariest like, Romero movie of all time. Yeah, and it's not like scary. It's it's a PSA, but it was a well-made PSA piece. And that's what we'll be talking about a little bit more about. But it's just, to me, the, the chatter around this film, I felt was a little bit disingenuous from a lot of the, the horror writers out there that just like were just really trying to get their articles get clicked on as opposed to just telling what it is like hey i enjoyed this for what it is please stop calling it a horror film it is not a horror film i don't care how horrifying um elderly abuse is to you or how sad it is it's not a narrative piece of filmmaking well i think first and foremost i mean before we come off uh negative i guess one could accuse us of being it's exciting and it's a gift that the George A. Romero Foundation was able to get this out and us to be able to see it. I mean, George is gone, and we used to say all the time on the old Death by DVD on the live days, it's a gift. We live in an era where Romero is putting out movies regardless of what they are, and it's, those days are long gone and they're over. So this was exciting. Regardless of what it is and, and what we're going to go on and talk about later, the overall production and seeing it and it being unearthed and it restored and Shutter putting it out is really terrific. And it's really awesome that the legacy of George Romero continues. My biggest problem with it, though, is this maybe isn't necessarily the legacy of George Romero I think he in intended on. And I can't speak on behalf of the dead whatsoever. But maybe sometimes things are quote unquote lost for a reason or for better terms shelved for a reason. And this has nothing to do with the success or you know being able to be excited and have fun while still watching this movie. But in agreement with Alexander Nash and what he was just saying, I really think it's been blown out of proportion. And with all due respects and all regards and all my love and passion to Ramiro, a hero, a god, one of the greatest people to ever exist, one of the greatest artists to ever exist, just a significant, a significantly brilliant, beautiful person. This just one. This isn't it. This isn't the foremost, most beautiful, devastating, immaculate work of, of George Alejandro Romero. No. I'm sorry, man. And and that's the thing. I just don't like, and I will speak for the dead. I will just make up what, in my mind, George would have probably said about this. He was like, ah, oh, that thing? Well, that was kind of fun to shoot, but like, it didn't mean anything to me. It's, it probably meant as much to him as like the, the Calgon commercials that he uh, he directed or the uh, the Iron City beer commercials that he, he made back in the day. It's literally just... Like, yeah, I did that as a job, and it was fun, and I made a little bit of money off of it. I pissed off the Lutheran church, uh, most definitely. But, I mean, uh, this isn't really part of my catalog of, as a filmmaker. The Calgon story. What happens when a Calgon research team and their submarine are reduced to micro size and sent on a dangerous mission deep inside a washing machine? Reversed full, Captain. We're stuck. We've got to find out what's on those fibers. Trapped in the fibers of a giant T-shirt, the Calgonauts discover secrets of gray, dull-looking laundry. Why, well, it feels like... Leftover detergent film. The fibers are covered with this stuff. Oh, this box has never been opened. Add the Calgon. You'll thrill as Calgon dissolves the dirty leftover detergent film. It's working. The gray is gone. The fibers are clean. Let's get out of here. <laughs> 
I think I'm in love with you. If you're tired of dull detergent films and great bee washes, thrill to the Calgon story at your nearby family washing machine. Do you ever see those pictures of uh, the, you know, the test audiences when people first went and saw Alien and when they saw The Exorcist and you've got these horrified faces from the early 1970s and, and early 80s of people just absolutely disgusted with this filth that all of us know and treasure and love as some of the greatest horror films of all time. I would love to see a reel of the Lutheran church that, that sponsored this movie. And, and regards of what happened when they sat down and watched this. It was an organization that's called the Lutheran Society, and they picked up George to do this. And they, it, was, it was with intent. They wanted an industrial. It was for elderly abuse. So just imagine all of these people sitting down to watch this, because what George ended up doing is pretty typical in George Romero fashion. He took an idea, and he reformulated it to a lot of his ideas and themes that are very constant throughout the major body of his work. And I don't mean things like the dark half. I'm talking about Martin, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, the, that whole trilogy, Knight Riders most specifically. Yeah, and with all this being said, as, as negative as all this is coming off, I'm not trying to be negative because what I saw, I enjoyed. But I think this is a piece for for lack of better like terminology for dorks and film dorks like ourselves to pick apart and look at George as a filmmaker as opposed to looking at it as just like, oh, well, did you see the new George Romero movie? Well, it's not. I mean, if you want to see a, a, a maestro in the early um, throes of his career really working things out and learning how to like and watch him grow as a filmmaker, this is a nice little thing to watch. But as far as just like adding it to his body of work, I just don't think it belongs there because it's just it, I don't, it's just not part of his body of work. So with all of that out of the way, I guess now it's just the only opportunity we're going to have to actually get into discussing this movie. And well, I keep calling it a movie for lack of better terms here because calling it an industrial is just going to be exhausting throughout this entire. I don't know. What do you want to we'll call We'll just call this? it a film. Fuck it. We're calling yeah. it a film just for brevity more than anything. See, we've kind of reached something here because you got to look at all the horror journalists and everybody else that's out there that's trying to cover this movie. What else are you going to call it? How, how else are you going to break this down outside of, well, here's a new Ramiro movie. And, you know, I, I don't want to repeat everything that you just said because I, I'm in pretty full agreeance of all of it. And then I just have to retouch upon what I said at the beginning of the show. It's cool that we got something coming out. It's It's fun. I like the Romero Foundation for what it's doing. I just hope that, you know, what what's going to be the next thing? Are we just going to get the juices loose out on 4K and it's going to be touted and promoted? As... <laughs> well, I mean, like, literally, this would be a special feature on, like, a, a George yeah. Romero box set. Like, or this would have been a, a perfect Blu-ray. for the Dawn of the Dead box set that came out a little while ago. I, it, it, I just keep catching myself because it sounds so overwhelmingly negative, and I don't mean it to come off as like, we don't give a shit here. I mean, it's gonna be a we're gonna be somewhat apologetic about it because it it sounds like we're we're being harsh on, but I think we're not being harsh at all as much as we are trying to temper people's expectations of what this is, of what a piece of storytelling filmmaking is, and there is storytelling in this, but it's this is not for the purpose of. Like financial gain at a movie theater. This was a educational film. That's specifically what it is. So it's it's it doesn't they don't cross over particularly. They're two different genres of like filmmaking. It would be like <coughs> Stephen King writing a stereo instruction manual and reading this, going, "Well, this is like I mean, this is Stephen King." Well, it's stereo instructions. What do you mean the stereo is well? not haunted? This is ridiculous. 
I mean, there are some terrifying moments, and there's a lot of aspects of what I guess you could call Romeroism in this movie, but what you just said again is kind of perfect here. We are trying to temper the expectations of people that may not have seen this or have seen this and maybe feel a little bit left down, because I've seen some wild comments even on Facebook, like, why the fuck isn't Tom Savini in it? I why would he be in it, though? Why would he? I mean, just ask yourself that question before you, Michael you know. Michael Gornick's in it. There's a cameo for you. Bill Heinzman was the cinematographer. You guys know Bill Heinzman? No, because you <laughs> I don't. I mean, there's some Romero regulars there. Ay, caramba! We interrupt this episode of Death by DVD for another Rudy Tooty fresh and fruity round of Keith David or David Keith. Ernest Dickerson's 1998 film Ambushed is about a black police officer who is framed for his partner's murder while investigating the slaying of a Ku Klux Klan leader. Who plays the character Lawrence? Is it David Keith? Or Keith David? Well, cover me from head to toe in peanut butter and roll me in sesame seeds. It's David Keith. Thanks for playing. And until next time, goodbye and good luck. And now back to Death by TV. Without a further a fuck you, apparently, as we're doing today, uh, let's get into what the amusement park is, which is this industrial film about aging. And the beginning and end parts where Lincoln Mazzell comes in and discusses the actual prompt of what we're getting ready to go over about how elderly people are treated in our society, how we shouldn't treat them this way, the different things that they might have to come up against, the different things that um, might you know, and be involved in their life in some way, shape or form. That feels very unromero like, and it seems kind of tacked on at the beginning, the end, almost like the, uh, the Lutheran society is like, well, we got to put this kind of shit on because it seems like what George was more interested in was the base of what was going on. And it is a fairly wild ride. That is a nonlinear trip through different ideas and concepts of aging set to how you would almost interact with people at an amusement park about buying tickets for rides. It also has a lot of different concepts about not just aging, but how aging, how being of a possibly a different race, being a person of color, how aging affects you um, differently than it affects you when you're white. Different uh, ideas about capitalism and how it gets involved in aging. So there's a lot of different George ideas rolling around in this as opposed to just like, look at this crazy old man, how he's getting the shit beat him out of, out of, out of himself at this amusement park. So there's a lot of different concepts going on throughout the, the whole piece. And almost like a, um, this is going to be in a weird comparison, Hank, but take this ride with me. It almost has some Hodorowsky-type influences to it, I think. Well, you know, I really want to say on top of all these other influences that Ramiro has had or that you're suggesting he has in the film, one, I think, is a reason that the, the Lutheran Church may have had a problem with it is I think really you have a testament and a thought of Ramiro's idea of what happens when you die or the entire futility of life in general because this film begins with our character played by Lincoln Mazel entering a white room 
and he's there already. He's already blundered and beaten and destroyed by what we're going to see happening. And when the film ends, we go exactly back to that room and we, we loop. So we repeat things that are exactly happening, which to me is almost a testament or the cycle of life, birth, death, rebirth, possibly a bit more esoteric than just a genuine beginning and ending of a movie. I think we've got something a little deeper here with this statement to uh, his maybe, maybe, you know, theoretically, Ramiro's ideas of not just religion, but rebirth. All of these things are going to continuously happen to you, something I say all the time on the show. Time is a flat circle. That once it happens, it's going to happen and keep repeating to happen. And you can see why an Orthodox church was like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> we just wanted you to make a thing about not being mean to old people. What are you doing? Yeah, we start with this blank slate of the man meeting himself, at, almost as in like he's in a different life, beat up, distraught, and this new version coming in, fresh and new and clean, and wanting to know what's going on outside of this door. And, you know, it's wild. There's a lot of uh, different noises, a lot of uh, excitement going outside. I, I want to see what's going on out there while the uh, the more distraught one is like, you, you don't want to go out there. You don't want to see any of that because eventually it's going to just take you through the ringer and you're going to end up just like me. And that's essentially what happens in the film. Well, he tells them specifically there's nothing out there. You're not going to like what's out there and, and there's well, yeah. nothing. You look at the point in the statement that this movie is attempting to give you in a non-narrative fashion, and I think all of it's really said at the beginning of the movie, because you find any person over 80, and it's the same questions. Have you gone outside? Do you like to go outside? Do you want to talk? And I'm not saying every elderly person is the same way, but a great deal of them are not ready for how the future has changed so quickly. They don't know how to function in society. They feel like they're completely ostracized and pushed away. And that's the example we're given at the very beginning of the movie is this person who doesn't even so much warn them. He's just kind of like feverently yelling, like there's nothing, there's nothing out there. There's, there's no hope. I felt it was more of a statement of him kind of proclaiming, I've been through this. I've been through what you, you who is about to be born, you who, is about to traverse this reality, go into this earth. I've done this, and I'm jaded, and I'm old, and I'm tired, and I don't give a shit anymore. And you've got the new hopeful baby, quote-unquote, going into this reality, learning what the world is step-by-step, step, functioning. And there's so many interweaving things that happen after that to get to the broken point that once we return to it, you yourself are exasperated, which is what Lincoln Mazel says at the beginning of this movie. We want to make you feel like you've been abused. And, I, you know, it works. It works to that. Yeah, it succeeds in that most definitely. Uh, probably the imagery that really kind of got me going at the beginning was people, the, all these elderly people trying to enter the park and they're trying to buy tickets. And they have no money, but the only thing they do have are clocks, which, of course, represents time or represents them, their aging and, like, time being up. And that's where I'm talking about almost like a Hodorowsky influences. Romero was using imagery and metaphor to tell a story. He's like he's he's not using dialogue and that that works throughout this whole thing. There is dialogue, but the dialogue is very Robert Altman like. It's very much overlapping and somewhat meaningless at times. We're not telling the story via dialogue. We're still telling it through different concepts of ideas that are being kind of thrown at us and we're not like and it's not hitting us over the head like George probably did a little bit later in his career and stuff like land of the dead. These are like a lot more subtle people 
like turning a clock in to buy tickets into an amusement park might not be sold to you, but it's still, it's pretty subtle for 1973. Even looking at that era specifically, there's even more imagery to kind of compound on what you're talking about, the Boot Hill thing, where it turns out to be a retirement home. You're going to have fun. Everything's going to be great, and you're shoved into this ride where they're encouraging elderly people to be a part of it to just get them out of the park, to just get them out of society, that everything is so referential to something else that you can get lost really in the imagery. Oh, Boot Hill, that's that's you know, part of the amusement park, it's cowboy stuff. Boot Hill's where you were buried. You know, that's where they took your corpse to bury you with your boots with a little wooden cross when you got killed in a shootout in the old Western movies. Everything is deeply referential, so I really dig on that. I mean, it's a bit it's a bit wild and decadent, but Death by DVD is wild and decadent, calling it, of course, a, a Hodorowski reference, but... Not reference, but I get... Well, um, yeah, I'm, my foot's I'm in my more mouth. talking I'm about how Hodorowski... Never particularly, because people always go, how trippy Hodorowsky stuff is. But really, he's telling a story, and he's just using, like, ideas. And he's just using, like, vibrations of ideas. And he's not telling you what this means. He's letting you decipher what this means. All these little bit, little bits of metaphor that he's throwing at you. And people, like, sit there and go over and over again about, I don't understand what's going on in the Holy Mountain. It's pretty fucking obvious what's going on in the Holy Mountain. I mean, like... None of that shit is subtle whatsoever. It's it's all very much blatant metaphors thrown in your face. And it's kind of the same thing with the amusement park where we're using a lot of metaphor like your Boot Hill metaphor to explain the, the story we're telling as opposed to like having plot-driven nonsense of Lincoln Mizell constantly like asking questions or constantly talking to people and like discussing where like what is supposed to be going on. No, we were telling this strictly through imagery and visuals. And that is what's very exciting about the amusement park is it's seeing George really like give it both barrels and like telling an entire story with just visuals, like 90% visuals. There's barely any dialogue in this entire thing. And the dialogue they do have is like so convoluted and indiscernible a lot of times because there's so much background noise and that is so much on purpose and it's so much to somewhat make you delirious that you're not understanding what's going on there's just so many things going on around you in this music park it's hard to concentrate almost like when you get old when everything starts just nothing's making sense to you it's almost it's it's kind of a reference to dementia it's kind of a reference to early dementia and just getting older in general where the world is no longer making sense to you well, atop from that, you also have society not listening to you anymore, that everything has become overcrowded with new voices, new ways, things that were acceptable socially and formally to you are no longer. You can't do things that you used to be able to do. You can't get away with things you used to be able to get away with. And no matter what type of person you are, it still would leave you rather confused. I mean, you live your entire life with one set of social rules and standards, and then all of a sudden, one day, everything absolutely changes. What do you do? It's just going to be overlapping voices. And even... In your 20s and 30s, you begin to get to an age where you no longer recognize the celebrity guests on Saturday Night Live. And when you watch ridiculous shows like The Masked Singer, you don't know who any of these people are that are being unmasked. You start realizing even at a young part of your, your existence how detached you can easily get when you don't participate when you and I don't mean this in a negative way but when you're set in your own ways let's say you just have a schedule you get up you go to work you like to watch a movie Tuesdays you watch football you have tacos on Wednesday you have a schedule and you do something specifically you get stuck inside that reality you get stuck inside that zone to where it becomes comfortable and a part of your existence and if something were to change that 
you're just left in utter and absolute confusion. You don't know what to do because your entire schedule has been con completely destroyed. So amplify that to you doing the same thing or living the same way or having the same thoughts and feelings for 60 years and then being just shoved into this, this new society, and not necessarily ours. I mean, this movie was made in 1973, so you're looking at people that were born at the turn of the century, you know, just 14, 15, 16 years after the Civil War had ended. People that grew up in such a completely different style before electricity, internet, com oh, fuck internet, we're talking about 1973 here. That was like giant, <laughs> huge computers that the military Electricity. Used. Yeah, electricity. Letting um, water. Yeah, toilets, the septic system, being able to go to the grocery store, lights, refrigeration, fucking cigarettes that come in a box. The world changed so drastically, so you look right now at people that were born in the 30s, living in, in, in our era, and I almost said 1921, 2021, you got to look at how just absolutely confused these people are going to be by TikTok and cell phones in general. Fuck, I'm confused by cell phones most of the time, and I'm 30-something. Hey, it goes back to that fucking uh, midlife crisis song. Everything's faith no more. It's all about faith no more. There are other several different metaphors throughout this, like uh, like George Romero doing his cameo and the bumper cars of complaining when he gets hit behind by this old couple of like you shouldn't have your driver's license, and the the ride operator slash cop is questioning them of why you did the you know and well, sir it says here that you should have your glasses on. I mean even defending somebody in a righteous manner being. Not just an elderly person, but I think the character that we're presented with, Lincoln Mazell, is kind of a clean slate. We just have to assume that he's a genuinely good person. There's no faults. He's not a child molester. He's not an evil bad guy. He's not going to turn into a zombie. He goes out of his way to try and help these people, and immediately the cop is condescending. Like, no, this dumb old fucker, you don't even have your glasses on. I'm going to go with the young guy. And, I mean, I, I think we're young, possibly wild, and crazy guys. Here in America, all the most swinging chicks can be found in these popular and unique art galleries. Of course, they pretended not to notice our bulges. <laughs> you psych me out, Jorge. So get off my back. <laughs> a, a little bit here and there. And what was really awakening is seeing this in the movie, and then you realize, well, you just see this every day. This is something that you become desensitized to as Lincoln Mazel fucking tells you at the beginning of the movie until one day you wake up and find yourself old. You're on the other end of it. You're the one who's being pretty much screamed at by somebody who's just like, why, why don't you understand what's going on right now? Well, I, I just, I like, the, life is kind of different and strange to me than it is to you. I mean, I'm at this different age. I'm in a different place in my existence than you are. So hold on a second and we can all kind of combine together and figure out what the situation is but people just don't have the patience for that and that's a lot of what's going on in this film as well is people just not having the patience to deal with the elderly and deal with uh, the the problems they may have it's just like i don't have time for this move on but what happens when he goes to the the medical tent you know he's been injured he's been hurt not only by society but he's been hurt by youths he's been beaten up by bikers and he finds a medical tent and they tell him Oh, you have insurance, but geez, isn't it easier if you just pay in cash? Just get inside, and then all they do is give him a bandage while he's murmuring and, and, and helplessly saying, I need more than a bandage. 
I really, I need more than a bandage. If that's not a sentiment to capitalism <laughs> in our <laughs> modern capitalism society. Criticism. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a statement 100%, which is infamous with the entire work of George Romero, and I think it stands for something of his integrity almost, that from Night of the Living Dead to Land of the Dead, the man had one fucking thing in his mind, and it's that late-stage capitalism is destroying and killing absolutely every single one of us. Seemingly a constant theme on every goddamn episode of the show. Nah, I don't think so. We've never talked about that before whatsoever. Yeah, we somehow didn't turn a five-part phantasm special into being about capitalism. Totally, that's not us. And, like, pretty much from the start of him getting to the amusement park, George, through his editing, and that's a big part of what's going on in this film, is George is an editor, and it's him really waxing as an editor and learning his craft, which... I think is personally his best attribute is he was a much better editor than he was a director. You, you watch this movie and you look at 1973 and you know that Martin is coming. And I, I think, and you've talked about this before, maybe not on this uh, format of Death by DVD, but we've spoken about it in the past. Martin is one of the most brilliantly and beautifully edited films of all time. If anything, the significance of that movie is the just... I can't even think of a term of how eloquent. You can go and back to the crazies, and the crazies has so yes. many shots. And again, that. But that this in between, with... I mean, because we're right in between the crazies here and Martin, and and I think the precision here is almost as delicate, almost as surgical, almost like he's a, a conductor just piecing this beautiful symphony together. And this is a really great middle ground of seeing that because Martin is extravagant. Martin is just like. How did you edit this without cocaine? What? This is insane. Some scenes, ha I mean, scenes. Who says he didn't? Oh, yeah, there might have been some lewds. Who knows? It was the <laughs> 70s. But some scenes in Martins have so many fucking cuts in, like, a 60-second frame, you can't count them. I mean, there are people that have sat down and done it. But, but it's it's cuts, like, hold on a second before we, when we're, as we're talking about editing. There's a difference between something like the Taken series of where we have 12 cuts in like, you know, four seconds of Liam Neeson getting over a fence and George Romero's editing where he's giving us actual information in each cut he's doing. It's new and relevant information. And he's he's building like he's building a story with his cuts. It's not just building one small action. He's building the uh, the environment that's around the people. And he used to call them dog shots. It's just cutaways when you don't get a really great master. You shoot a bunch of like B-roll footage so you can use it in the editing room and kind of fix things. But it also became uh, like a rhythm and a pattern that George worked in because much like the crazies, amusement park is highly edited. And I think he honed it during this period to when he got to Martin, where he really is telling a silent story. Almost all the dialogue in Martin is irrelevant to what the story actually is. He's telling a silent film with Martin, and it's kind of the same thing with, with Amusement Park, where it's basically a silent film, but we're still getting all the ideas. We're still getting all the story. It's just all visually told to us, which is, as a filmmaker, what you were supposed to be doing is visually tell us, telling us a story. It's not just about shooting a script. It's about using your visuals to inform that story and not just, you know, just kind of throw it out there in a bunch of flat master shots that are kind of meaningless. I think a key and a really big thing to George Romero as an artist is his absolute love of Western films. And I think as a guy, as, as a person, he was a bit of a cowboy. He was definitely a rebel. He was a loner. He had his little crew of bandits that he would run and gun with and shoot things the way that he felt they needed to be shot with. But I think a lot of the things and styles that really capitalize his work 
come from not just Western films, but Western TV shows and a lot of silent films, specifically something like The Amusement Park. There are a great deal of either musical westerns or silent westerns from the 30s and going into the 40s that you had to 100% rely on telling the story through visuals. And then even something like Stagecoach, John Ford, one of the early big premieres of John Wayne being a lead rolling character. The movie is about a bunch of people on a fucking stagecoach and then they get to one location. So you go from a stagecoach to another one location, very similar to a play. But what makes it so remarkable is how beautiful it is, the contrasts of just black and white, and how it was used with just absolute craftsmanship. You look at all these things, and why I'm rambling about Westerns and John Ford, is a lot of these people and these styles were heroes and uh, passionate things to George Romero, things that he used as his influences, he learned and knew, like, you go around the early 70s to There's Always Vanilla, Season of the Witch. This is around a time period I feel that Ramiro kind of learned, like, I might be getting boxed in to doing horror. I did the zombie picture, and now nothing. But he got incredibly experimental, and he used horror as a basis to get experimental. Like, fine, you want to make me, uh, I need to make a horror film, I'll make uh, Jack's Wife. And he's very experimental with how he made that film. Same way with The Crazies, same way with Amusement Park, and same way with Martin is he's getting experimental to really learn his craft as a filmmaker and learn it as a visual storyteller. And George was one of the best visual storytellers there was out there. And it's a shame that a lot of other directors don't pick up on this because so much of it now is just following lines in a script just following plot, like plot descriptions, and we've got to go from point A to point B to point C. And that is so irrelevant to what filmmaking is. It is about indicating feelings and emotions through visuals. And that's what all of Amusement Park is. It's indicating emotions to your audience using the visual medium and sound, because sound is very important in film as well, to really evoke a feeling in you. And it's, you know, it's a feeling of dread in the Amusement Park. It's a feeling of chaos, more than anything, and the editing really informs the chaos of it because we're not focusing too much on one particular thing. We're chopping around, we're cutting, we're cutting, we're cutting. And by the time you get to the uh, the medical tent stuff and you get to the um, outside footage in the city and the, the woman whose husband is dying in her apartment and she keeps having to walk down to the payphone to call the doctor, like, like so much of that is just told through how he is editing things, and the chaos that he is presenting well, I mean, through if you his editing. Go ahead and say something like, uh, it's very Hodorowski-ish. You could also say instances like that, that there's a lot of attributes to somebody like John Cassavetes. But what I was meaning earlier, like when you get into something like Season of the Witch, uh, Jack's Wife, or There's Always Vanilla, uh, where you had said it's very experimental, yes. And that's that really is, is what my point is going into. But when you look at the format and the styles and the introduction of character and the flow of how these movies are told, the 100%, you could watch them muted. You don't need to have at all Season of the Witch on with volume. You could you could format and figure out what's going on with the story without having to be told what's going on. The amusement part comes in between that time period, and it's really, to me, fascinating seeing somebody where I, I feel at this point in their life that they were starting to realize I might be a little screwed here. I think I'm getting boxed in. And this is kind of what they expect of me, so I really need to stretch my dollar, and I really need to stretch my imagination to get my my hopes and dreams and, and have some substantial persona, some soul into my films. Because Ramiro, no matter what people said, he never sold out. And he did, but he didn't, and that's a debate for another show and a discussion for another show. But the period of time that we're talking about here, I feel he was really struggling with his identity and... 
making it happen, getting it out there and having something for himself. And this is probably why the movie ended up not having any success through the Lutheran church is because he put so much of himself into it and his opinions, no matter what people want to say, were radical and are radical. You know, Ramiro was for the people, by the people, and it's very, very relevant in this film. Yeah, and it does have that spirit of early Romero films, like pre-Night Riders, all the stuff before Night Riders, where it's just it's all one big filmmaking family, and George just like having his friends on the set and working with this specific group of people before he somewhat had to uh, not so much go union with Creep Show, but he had to work with a much bigger. Like Creep Show is technically the last one where he worked with all of his crew, but it it feels somewhat out of place because that 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 was the shift of when Warner Brothers somewhat gets involved, and then the Teamsters were um, protesting their movie at one uh, protesting Creep Show at one point uh, because he didn't want to use a union crew; he wanted to use his crew. It didn't matter if they were union or not. Yeah, Creepshow to me really, and I don't mean it in any disregard to the film because it's a great movie and I really, really enjoy Creepshow, but it's always a, a dour note when it's brought up or it's discussed with me that it really has to be one of my least favorite things when it comes to George Romero just because of that. Because it killed the crew, it killed the dream, it killed these people that have been working with him from, from the beginning. Not just Bill Heinzman, but you don't see John Amplis anymore in his films. You don't see... Well, he was in Day of the Dead, but that's about as far as it goes after that. Yeah, after that, the gang really gets cut short. I mean, you've got a lot of returning people. Joe Pilato, um, Cardilli. We have a Cardilli reappearing in the film from the first time since 1968. But to me, it was kind of the end of the hopes and the dreams. And if you've seen Knight Rider, it's it's not a happy ending because he dies. No, it's it's George realized that he can't do this independent filmmaker shit anymore. And if he's going to make it, anywhere and not so much make it as in I got to make some money more along the lines of if I want to continue to be a filmmaker, this is what I'm going to have to do because this is also the time period in the early eighties when the studio system really took over and that experimental 70s shit that was going on is out the fucking door. We've made jaws. Now we've made star Wars. We've made Raiders of the lost Ark, and now it's time to make money. You want to do what you want to shoot a, um, a huge zombie epic. Um, with lots of gore, yeah, we're not doing that because you're telling me the people that... live in the trees and they live underground and they're smart zombies. If you've read the original, even heard of the original, I'm so David glad it was Dead. avoided. <laughs> yeah, and and to some extent, I kind of wish that Land of the Dead hadn't ended up the way it had because a lot of that was, you know, the other half of the Day of the Dead script. And I, I mean. I don't know. I think my biggest problem is that Day of the Dead is a Toronto movie and it has nothing to do with making films in Canada, but we're we're discussing and talking about the soul and the embodiment of George Romero. Taking him out of Pittsburgh, just something changed. The 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 tone, the feeling. The grit was gone, man. And what sucks so much is Pittsburgh now has become a, a great mecca for films, and a lot of that has to do with people that worked with George Romero founding and and starting Pittsburgh film companies. I mean, what the Dark Knight Rises was filmed in Pittsburgh. A, a, a lot of Tom Cruise films. I'm I'm drawing a blank here. A lot of movies are filmed in Pittsburgh, but I can't fucking name any of them. Sorry, but it's become. This is a fact. At least you can Google it. It's become a, a source of point in the east coast of massive productions not just independent filmmaking but 40 50 100 million dollar movies that are being made and produced in inner city and around centralized pittsburgh it's just a, a shocking shame like within two or three years of this happening you know ramiro went to toronto and once he was there he was there i don't know what kept him there i don't know if it was the tax breaks or 
hanging out with David Cronenberg every day. Because if I could hang out with Cronenberg every day, I'd live in Toronto. Well, I think a good portion of it is, is, I don't know if it's so much Toronto as much as one of the worst things that happened to George Romero as a filmmaker, I know a lot of people would disagree with me on this, is budgets and money. Because one of the things that was George's strengths is something like Amusement Park, is something like Martin where he's got to steal a lot of shots. He's got to make something work. He's got to like have all of his creative fire or creative cylinders firing to really come up with something and finish the product that he wants to do. Once it became about uh, like 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 studios and like sets on uh, sound stages and stuff like that, it just I think it lost a lot of its urgency. It lost a lot of its like kinetic energy that George had in say the seventies when he was just like running and gunning and getting as many shots. He like he, he was having to do fucking storyboards and like p- plan pages. And that is not where George Romero's strength lies in fucking planning out your day fully and not being able to get just a shit ton of footage that you want. And I'm going to make this work later. It became so much about keeping to that shooting schedule. And I just, I don't think it was as fun for George as it was back in the day when he was just grabbing as much shit as he could and just making it work. He was definitely a MacGyver of an artist, and I think what worked to his benefit is when he didn't have money, when he had to take three rubber bands, a ketchup packet, and some band-aids, and make that into a zombie, he made you some fucking terrific, terrifying zombies. Some of the things that people love the most about Dawn of the Dead is the almost comic book feel to things. A lot of the reasons things look that way is because of budgetary effects. Now the movie is an icon it will never be forgotten because of the imagery that we know with inside of that movie they just didn't have the money to do things the way that would have been done traditionally and now it's an iconic and thing. we're better for it yes for that 100 percent. i mean you cut this guy's budget in half and th- this is day of the dead if you'd have given him a hundred million dollars to make day of the dead it would have been god awful it would have been this giant bloated beaten fucking corpse of a horse that just <laughs> covered with flies and it you don't want it to continue He had to cut things down, he had to revise, he had to do what he did best. He had to cut, edit, and come up with a synopsis and a scenario to show you something that was going to be emotionally evocative. And to me, I think Day of the Dead's the best of the Dead trilogy. I think, in fact, it's one of the strongest films that Romero ever made when it comes to tone and storytelling. And a lot of people disagree. I love Dawn of the Dead, I don't want to say one's better than the other. But every time I watch this movie to this day, I still get creeped out. I still can't go outside if the lights are off. Well, that's a weird way of saying if the sun is down, if it's dark outside, to smoke a cigarette without being creeped out because of those haunting chills that uh, the underground zombies slowly bellow out. That's effective. 30 fucking years later, Day of the Dead, still, all, uh, almost all of Ramiro's work, I mean, Bruiser didn't really touch me that much, always has some form of effect anytime I watch it, whether it's Day of the Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Night of the Living Dead, Martin. I cry watching Night Riders. The end of that movie fucking makes me cry. All this translates really into the amusement park because we're seeing George with that can do attitude and just getting his shit shot, shooting as much as he possibly could and making it work. And that works beautifully as a uh, creative filmmaker in this, in this picture is just because George is able to take that footage and really create a narrative, even though it's not a narrative piece of filmmaking, he does he's able to create a narrative in this PSA announcement for all extensive purposes and really add some drama to it overall. 
Uh, I wouldn't say this is the, the the most depressing movie I've ever seen, and a bunch of other stuff you're gonna see in the reviews over the next few weeks. But it's effective as a filmmaker more so than anything. Now, as a piece of art, whatever. I'm not particularly concerned about dissecting it so much as a piece of art. But as an artist, he's doing his job to the best of his ability in this film. So what would you say is the most depressing film you've ever seen? I I don't know. There's several depressing films. I actually have an answer to this. One of the most depressing films I've ever seen, co-starring recently deceased Ned Beatty. Rest in peace, Ned. Mikey and Nikki by John Cassavetes. Oh, Jesus Christ. Now, look at that misnomer. That's hysterical. Mikey and Nikki is the only John Cassavetes movies he actually didn't write and direct, and uh, he stars in it, but it is by the incredibly talented... I, f- I feel so stupid. This is an Elaine May movie who is one of the greatest fucking directors, not just of the 60s and 70s. She was a, a, a beautiful fucking comedian going before that. She had this incredible act, a back-and-forth act. Anyway, Doctor. Yeah? Just as we're coming out of the tunnel. Yeah. Everyone in the dream suddenly turns to me and says, Look, there goes Gertrude Ederly. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't say anything. Yeah. And I give Goldie the reins of the elephant to hold because mm-hmm. I want to pay the good humor man for the popsicle. Yeah, sure, yeah. Well, suddenly Goldie turns to me and she gets very uppity mm-hmm. and she says, If you can afford a popsicle, hold your own elephant. She wouldn't take the elephant. No. <laughs> well, what do you make of that? Well, uh, Mrs. Van Loon, you know, I, I see a pattern becoming clear in all of your dreams and yeah. I think uh, in this one it's unmistakable. Yeah. Your unconscious is telling you not to forget to file your income tax return early. You see, yeah, yeah, the yeah. elephant becomes clear when you remember the deadline is April 15th. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, now I know what the good humor man means. Well, yeah? The sooner I file my return, the sooner I get any refund I might have coming. Yeah, yeah. Doctor, Mm. can I deduct you from my income tax? Don't be tasteless. And then became an insane fucking talent. Mikey and Nikki took her like four fucking years to do because she kept editing it. She had to get it absolutely perfect. It's about a guy who's going to get killed. It's a mob movie, kind of. His guy is going to get killed. And his best friend knows he's going to get killed, and he's pretty fucking shitty to his best friend. He's actually just a really shitty, reprehensible person. Can you tell who plays that guy? It's John Cassavetes. <laughs> Mikey's played by Peter Falk, so it's even better because these two cats are best friends in real life. And the movie's about them going from a couple bars and walking around downtown New York and yelling at each other and fighting. They go to a graveyard because the guy's so drunk he wants to find his mother grave. Nothing. This just sounds like shit, right? It just sounds boring. It sounds like nothing happens in this movie. One of the saddest films I've ever seen. It's it's incredibly heartbreaking, and it's the storytelling. It's the emotional... I'm trying to think of how I want to word it. It's, it's the arrangement of the emotions, and it's how all of these things have been pieced together, uh, not unlike a puzzle, for you to be able to formulate without having to even really do much. And why I'm reflecting on this and why I, I segued into bringing this up is not only because Ned Beatty died the day that we recorded this, we'll miss you, Ned. But because of the emotion behind it and the uh, just connecting things, trying to give you at least a, an example and a format of what George did here, it's not very uncommon. It's, it's unique in itself, But really the problem with the amusement park is I think how it's been handled with its release and how, I don't want to use this term, but I'm just going to say it, I feel it's almost been tainted. So many people are portraying it as something it 100% isn't. I don't think... It's on shutter, for God's sakes. And I know that's the vehicle that it has to, to be pushed on because of who George was as a filmmaker, but 
it's not well, see, that's a not horror film. <laughs> there is so much stuff. I mean, uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is on the Criterion channel right now, so I, I really disagree a little bit here that this could have maybe had a, a dressed-up release, and I'm not complaining. I'm saying for anybody to care, you're going to have to get George Romero fans to watch it, and what are George Romero fans going to have? Are they going to have the Criterion uh, app, or are they going to have the Shutter app more than likely? So that makes it's sense. about getting it to the most amount of people possible. So Shutter's probably the best place to put that. It's just odd that it's on there because it doesn't really fit in with Shutter's programming. The biggest problem that I think with all of this, and maybe a place that we can get toward an ending with this episode tonight, is a film, an industrial, whatever you want to call the amusement park, it had a very, very specific meaning. And you can tell through all the emotion and all the storytelling that George formatted and edited and edited, 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 why that's a hard word to say. All the things that George compacted and put into this, all the things that you feel, all the things that you see, they're kind of lost. Because the way it's being promoted is as this horrifying thing, this, the scariest thing you'll ever see. The point of the movie, all of these things that he worked so hard on to have as a message, if anything, shouldn't that be the point of this being released? Not the fact that it's a long-lost Ramiro film, but it's something he was aware about and he never spoke about in his entire career or his life. It was shelved, but the whole point of it is ageism. When we release it and we format it and we direct it toward the horror audience, when we promote it as being such a horrifying, terrible experience, you'll never know anything like this from George Ramiro, we're kind of missing the point, and I hate to be that guy, but at the end of the fucking day, isn't the point about ageism and late-stage capitalism? And we're missing it. And that seems to be a theme with all of Ramiro's work. It's missed. It's completely missed. What do you mean Dawn of the Dead is about capitalism? It's just a bunch of people surviving in a mall, collecting all the things that they never could in life until finally their walls come down and it's crumbled beneath them and all these things that didn't matter. Oh, wait. Oh. Oh, yeah, see? See? <laughs> How do you like them apples? Oh, tell me it's not fucking about that. All right. And those things are prevalent in the amusement park. That's one of the reasons I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it as a visual piece of filmmaking and seeing an artist really learn more of his craft in this film. And that is the way to approach it. And that is why I enjoyed it. I'm just not so sure a lot of people are going to approach it that way because, yeah, you're going to have a bunch of horror dorks who are into film that are going to like watch this and appreciate it on certain levels. But there's going to be a lot of people who are 22 years old are just going, what is this and why is it on here? You know, it's not even the younger audience going back to something I said earlier, just scrolling through Facebook and horror groups, horror everything, the Joe Bob Briggs group, this sucks, I don't get it. It's not just 20-year-olds, it's 40, 50, 60s. There's people that just went into this with the expectation. Because it's not really, like, this is for dorks. That's the whole point of putting this out is for people to analyze film and it's not to be enjoyed as a movie. <laughs> well, you say this is for dorks, but I'm over here like this should be used for fucking anti-ageism. Like, oh, I'm we talking should... <laughs> about the release now. You know, the I, release I, I, I now yeah. is that that's what it's for. But like in general, the idea behind it is, yes, it's a public service announcement, but to release it now on Shutter, this is for a very select crowd of people. And I'm I'm glad that I'm a part of that select group. Yes, I'm a, yes. Like I'm proud that like that people can go back and watch it, and that's awesome. And we can sit here and dissect it. But it's not for everybody. Don't advertise it like it's for everybody. Like you want to see a new George Romero film. A lot of these people just know 
fucking Day of the Dead. This is not Day of the Dead. It's not even close to Day of the Dead. I think the shocking thing, though, is the people that watched it thinking it was just going to be a, a George A. Romero horror movie that didn't get it and are mad. You know, this was just a big piece of shit. If this didn't touch you in any way... I, I would deeply, like, like go I don't the think you like book. movies. Well, not even that. Like, call a therapist. It's not even a matter of liking movies. If there wasn't a part of the amusement park that didn't touch you, didn't make you reflect, didn't make you think about society as a whole, not just the elderly, seriously, call a fucking therapist. Get in contact with somebody soon. You, you really could be a sociopath. From the beginning of this movie, I think you are stricken with a great deal of emotion. Not just confusion. I mean, you have this really... Uh, symbolic white room but immediately you know something terrifying is going to happen and the events that are so terrifying is something that we've lived every day you don't have to be old to have a, a communique with this movie to actually understand what's going on it could even be taken down to something as anxiety uh, the, the the dinner scene, or I guess it's not a dinner scene, he decides that he's going to get food, and he sees this really lavish, rich man with a cigar, and he's eating, and they're treating him really well, and he's got the same amount of tickets, so he decides that he's going to sit down and have a meal too. And the man is so disgusted by him being in his visage that he fucking makes the people come and turn his entire table around so he doesn't have to deal with looking at him. If that's not a representation itself of the rich wanting to just eat and kill the poor, I don't know what is, but the beauty behind all of that is you don't have to be old to relate to it. All of us at some point have been looked down upon or made to feel that we aren't something or are lesser than we are. I think a huge point in the emotion behind what we're being exposed to here needs to be acknowledged. I think there is a lesson to be learned with this 40-year-old art aside from well, it just there was no zombies and there was no tits and nothing happened. There's no gore and Tom Savini didn't show up. Unfortunately, Tom Savini wasn't around every single moment. It was 1973. He was probably getting fucking laid. Okay, he was a little busy. Or he was in Vietnam still. Yeah, he very one or the two. He was in Vietnam or he, he was. He was getting laid in Vietnam. Yeah, because I mean, it's Tom Savini. He's gonna get laid wherever he goes. And speaking of that scene with the, the like the dinner scene. That is another scene that felt very Hodorowsky to me as well, because it's it's a lot of it is just the um, the acting, but the performance is very arch and over the top, and you get the same thing in a lot of wider crowd shots and something like um, the Holy Mountain, like uh, the background extras are always like very much silently acting, acting like they're in a stage play and just really like throwing it out there and that is equal in this film to where it's just, we're trying to tell a story. We're not going to be using dialogue to do it. So go out there and give basically a mime performance is what they're doing. And it works because they are translating the ideas that they're trying to present to you. And you are getting these concepts or you should be getting them. And like you were saying before about if this doesn't affect you in some way, that's what works so well with George being a visual storyteller and visual filmmaker in this movie is he's able to translate those emotions to you just through those images and just through the uh, the chaos of the, uh, the the background sound of everything going on and he he can put you in that in that spot that the, the uh, link Mazelle is in and he becomes your avatar and you can really sit there and experience it with him and feel like you were there. And that is just literally, literally due to how a filmmaker is 
translating images and visuals to you and translating ideas to you. And it's brilliantly done in this film. Throughout the entire episode, you've been really running with this Hodorowski thing. And, and midway through, it hit me with the whole Cassavetes thing. So as your opposition, what a strange yin and yang with the two people... <laughs> It's really weird. They don't have too much that's not in common, though. I think, um, like, like John Cassavetes and Alejandro Hodorowski are pretty compatible people when you break down what they stand for and what they do, which would just be a very, very awkward marathon. But what you were just discussing, the tone and the emotion, there's a film. This one actually is directed and written by John Cassavetes, but I use the term written very, very loosely. It's called Husband. Hey, guess what? Peter Falk's in it, too. It's about a bunch of friends who are in their 50s, late 40s, and one of their friends dies, and they're going to go to his funeral, and they're going to go overseas. There's really no script. It's Cassavetes and all these guys staying in character, and they're just getting shit-faced. They play basketball, they get shit-faced, they go to bars. The bar scene's like 45 minutes. It's longer than the intro to The Deer Hunter. I never thought I'd see something in my entire life longer than that goddamn wedding scene in The Deer Hunter. And if you watch the movie, you know exactly what I'm talking about. This is the second time I've made a reference to a film starring him that's like, well, this sounds like shit. Why the fuck would I want to watch this? Nothing seems to be happening in this. You're not selling it to me. The emotion, the tone, the expression of these people... In their late 40s, early 50s, uh, becoming detached. One of their friends they've known forever is dead, and it's the uh, the raucous nature of them. It, it's how almost like uh, anarchitical, that's not a word, but maybe you can follow with what I'm saying, their behavior has become, that they have become so loose and detached because one of their own is dead because they've felt uh, an absurd amount of emotion in a short period of time and they don't know what to do with it. That's really... The amusement park. So with your ying of Alejandro Hodorowski, uh, it sounds like I'm yodeling. Alejandro Hodorowski and my yang of John Cassavetes, what you've got at the end of the day is this is a lot of emotion in a very, very short time period. It's not a long film. What What is the runtime on this? 57 minutes. 57 minutes long, which may be the runtime of this episode too. Who knows? You've got so much shoved in your face, and it's beautiful. I mean, we started this off, I think people might come into this episode and think these guys don't like George Romero. These guys aren't horror fans. They don't oh, know what to talking about. Oh shit, we've done a thousand shows and I know what I'm talking about. I'm a Romero expert. And that's something that I do uh, put on you know, all my job applications. For 12 years, we have dedicated our love and our lives to the study of George A. Romero. But at the end of the day, at the end of this ride, we didn't make one Bill Hicks reference. That's kind of funny. It's just a ride. You've got the amusement park, something that maybe the end of the show might be a Bill Hicks quote. It's all just a ride, man. You can get on it anytime you want to. You can stop. You can do whatever you want to. It's just a ride. George Romero eloquently and adequately showed it to us, but this is a weird thing. And bringing up Hodorowski again, people talk about all the time how weird he is. You've got that wild-ass Frank Zappa film. This is up there with that. Visually, it's very strange. Back in the day on the old Death by DVD, we used to do something called the Inebriation Dedication. We would tell you a movie that you could watch while you were fucked up with. This is something that you could eat some shrooms, sit down, and probably have a terrible time. But (laughs) (laughs) it's going to be a time. It's going to be a ride, just like this episode was. That's it, everybody. The ashtray's full. The bottle is empty. Thank you for taking this ride with us, and long live Romero. George A. Romero forever. On the next episode of Death by DVD.
California Highway Patrol Motorcycle Officers I. Alexander Nash and Hank Punch Poncherello cruise the freeways of Los Angeles, solve crimes, and help people in trouble in this hot cop show. Join us next time as Hank and Nash chase a sports car theft ring, a broken down motorist takes his anger out on his old car, a small plane lands on the highway, and while on a date, Hank receives the ticket and decides to attend traffic school to hide the citation from his superior officer. All next week on Death by DVD. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. This is Radio Land, the infinite turtle, the waves through the ether fuzz roll on forever. Thank <laughs> you.